Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, another Rich and Bolelli chat as we take a deep breath and prepare for the next round of insanity and focus on nostalgia replacing creativity over the past 25 years as boredom disappears. Things were not so great back when things were great. The incredible power of storytelling. Twins the new trend, Jimi Hendrix, and convincing me to let the sun rise tomorrow. Here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast, episode 191. America has cast its ballots and they voted Daniele Bulelli yes. as their favorite podcaster. God damn it. That would make that's the way life should be. Oh, right? yeah. We would charge a dime an episode at that point. Yes. Make $4. Um, Speaking of which, let's say thank you to the sweet folks who have supported us this month. That's an outstanding idea. Let the pottering begin. We say thank you to Yanni Linnima, Luis Pesquera, Jesse Rantakangas. Uh, Jesse Rantakangas again because he donated $10. Because just as Rich asked, you know, please send me $10 so that I will keep making the sunrise. Jesse said, hey, I want the sun to keep rising. I heard uh, Rich saying it last episode, so... The sun shall rise tomorrow. Okay, so everybody, everyone in the world, to thanks Jesse because it's his donation that has allowed Rich to bring the sun back today. Now so. I'm, my power is starting to make me crazy. All right. no, no. <laughs> keep it going. Just keep the $10 donation coming. I may go. need to stop the sun to teach a lesson tomorrow. <laughs> hey, he gave something. Jesse saved that us all. That was for one day. <laughs> okay, so we need 30 people in a month. Okay, got it. I see. <laughs> There's going to be some tithing involved, I can tell already. Get the buckets ready. (laughs) More thanks to Xavier Walker, Aaron Weisner, Marcus, I'm taking a guess, Eurola, Eurola, one of those, Clayton Payne, Christopher Parcel, Andrius Jovaiza, Stephen McKee, Jonathan Water, Ross Cranham, and Jeremy Bahun. Maybe, not sure, Bahun, probably. What a fantastic collection. There seem to be more and more new names every week. Yeah, man. You guys are sweet. We and, of course, really, the golden oldies. Yeah. Always appreciated. Absolutely. We really appreciate the support. If you want to join this band of heroes, you can go to paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Again, paypal.me forward slash the letter D. And my last name, B-O-L-E-L-L-I. 
or another way to go about it if you guys uh, shop on amazon particular christmas shopping is coming up if you can remember to do that that would be sweet go to dbamazing.com again dbamazing.com and at that point anything that wasn't already in your cart that you actually search for while you open this site and then buy right then and there that amazon give us a little cut so if you can please remember to do it dbamazing.com is the way to go also thank you to some sweet folks who have been sending us their goodies among the goodies oh man i just got a shipment yesterday this made me cry it was beautiful a glorious man by the name of brian from materrawines.com uh, that's m-a-t-e-r-r-a wines.com send me some bottles of this fantastic merlot they are out in napa valley I can't even tell they you. They can make some wine was. up there for sure. So yes, and uh, <laughs> and that's interesting because is uh, we have a Napa Valley. You know, we need to take a Napa trip because Brian with uh, Matera Wines has been fantastic to us, and somebody else who has been doing this for quite a while of sending us uh, his wine from Napa, uh, Pete Hoffman from Aum Cellars. Um. Those are also fantastic. So fantastic that right now you can't even get them. We know whereas the Matera one, you can actually buy them right Sold now. The home sellers, they are on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. So that's the gig. But yeah, these folks have been phenomenal in keeping the drunken into drunken Taoist. So thank you so much. <laughs> I'll put links in the episode notes. Of course, big giant thank you to grasslandbeef.com. There's uh, a good reminder that there's some London broil in the freezer waiting for Rich, who's going to make fantastic things with it. So yes. if you guys are interested in uh, matching Rich culinary skill, go check grasslandbeef.com. They have a whole series of phenomenal products there. Check them out. And don't forget, because Christmas is coming, it's a good chance to get those Kiva cards. $25 donations that your bratty nieces and nephews that need to learn a little bit about sharing with the world, a good opportunity for them to lend, get their money back, and lend again. Kiva.org. Come join Team Drunken Taoist. I just put, I'm going to show Rich as soon as we finish a recording, I'm going to open the door to my garage. <gasps> the dojo is I ready. I laid down all the mats from zebraathletics.com way better than i could ever imagine uh they did a phenomenal job i even had them print a logo the one that i use on the Taoist lecture series the feather dao uh the yin yang with the feather i'm so happy with the way it came out so I, i've heard rumor that there's a naked savannah on the other side if you flip it over well that's probably that's how i should have made it like just straight out self-art <laughs> but yeah, if you are looking to create a home dojo, zebraathletics.com with phenomenal mats. Of course, short design with their great t-shirts. And I think that's all the thank yous for today. Well, here we go. Okay, here we go. Let's roll. Let me look up a name real quick. Okay, Make here sure we I... not go. Here Let's we not almost roll. go, but we're rolling. Yeah.
So here we are, crazy times, things are swirling, who knows what's going on. I, I was very excited about the outcome of the election for a minute. That was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But uh, who knows where it's going. Yeah. And I mean, it's developing every day. So by the time these releases, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, there's a guy named Kurt Anderson who wrote a book called Fantasyland. And it is essentially how the, when the insanity arrived with the Puritans, how it has just swirled mm-hmm. and how Americans are suckers for all sorts of things. But it seems the thing we are suckers for more than anything else. <laughs> it's going to come. It's going to come. It's in there somewhere. Nostalgia. Mm. We are nostalgia junkies in an insane, crazy way. Well, I think that's a classic thing, though. I don't think it's uh, exclusively American in the sense that the, these uh, nostalgia for a past that never was. Uh, it's a classic trope of, uh, you know, you don't like the way things are, so you project onto the past the things that you wish that your life was like or that society was like, yep. and you make up this narrative about this golden age that never really existed and make it sound classic, classic thing, absolutely. Yep. And that, incidentally, there's a bit of, a, you know, bunch of fascist movements run with it about the whole, uh, you know, glorious past return to tradition all that kind of stuff all of that is invented but that's i mean that's beside the point because to me it's the quality of the nostalgia that changes right if you have nostalgia for something that never was but it's awesome hey why not right so the next book comes out because that was fascinating it just takes it all the way through you know just the weirdness of once it sort of got into the 70s Happy Days and the 50s and American Graffiti and that and just sort of kind of rolled up upon itself but he had a new notion that really kind of blew me away and this one just kind of stunned me and I can't wait to get your take on it. Mm-hmm. If you think, we're not, I, I don't find myself a fashionista, but I could clearly go through, that's the look of the 20s. Mm-hmm. That's the look of the 50s. Sure, sure. And when we get into the 60s, things were shifting every three or four years. Sure. So if you take sort of like 64 to 82 to go from the launch of the the, yep. the Tide Beatles to mm-hmm. the hippies and the and the psychedelia and yep. then into the seventies and all that sort of people wearing jeans and long hair and the giant collars and all this sort of madness all the way leading up into the eighties the punk thing and then the eighties had a sort of neon thing of its own but then we get into the nineties it all stalls out mm-hmm. and other than the phones from the mid nineties till now fashion hasn't shifted cars mm-hmm. look the same. Where cars would shift every five years yeah, yeah, would yeah. be something yeah. new and amazing. But I think since just thinking about it, uh, Ford put out a kind of a retro T-Bird, I think that was kind of mid-90s. And it was cool looking, mm-hmm. but it failed. And now you can't tell the difference between a Ford and a, and a Accord think- or they all look the same. Well, here's where the scary part comes yeah. in. It seems to align itself with the arrival of Reagan and this new conservatism, which was... Going back to the olden times, the rough and rugged America. Mm-hmm. But for some think, reason, like um, it seems imagination and, and style has ground to a halt. But do you think there's a connection because the pace of change in other parts of life is so insanely high? You know, the technology, the way our lives. Do you think that maybe other aspects tend to stall out a little more because there's already so much change? I think it has a lot to do with it. I think it has a lot to do with that first sort of hooking into nostalgia, the 70s, yeah, going yeah. to the 50s, and that just mm-hmm. revisits itself. And then there's like, that's a gold mine. Yeah. Those folks from the 50s are going to want to remember the 50s for all time. So it's sort of, you start focusing in on that. The one that's really kind of scary, though, is kids don't have 
boredom anymore. Sure. I remember summers when it'd be like, what the fuck are we going to do today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're good on our bikes again. But some genius person out there said, in those summers of the 80s, when there was nothing to do, that's when somebody would pick up that guitar. That's when somebody would pick up their mom's paintbrushes. That's when somebody... And so that empty time is constantly filled right now. I mean, to watch us all, and it's amazing. I never thought my mother would be clicking around on her phone. My aunt is as hooked to Candy Crush as I am. (laughs) I mean, this is insanity. I was watching um, the other day in an educational moment. I decided I had to show, I don't think Savannah had seen it either. So both with Sav and Isabella, we watch... uh, the end of uh, Hendrix's performance at Monterey Pop Festival. So that performance is already phenomenal because Hendrix was pretty much unknown in the US. He had just come out in the UK and he was getting a following there, but in the US had next to no following and nobody knew him yet. And he went at Monterey Pop Festival, which was this huge event with some of the top groups and musicians of the time. He was kind of like a pre-Woodstock in a way. Yeah, yeah. And that performance is just unreal how powerful that is. He goes through this set, a few songs, I forgot, five, six songs, something, and each one is better than the next and is powerful. And it would just been like the first record or two, huh? Yeah, and then I'm even thinking if he even had a record at that point or if he just released it, you know. He either just released it or it was right before he released it. And then there is the last song that comes in, and it's Wild Thing. It's a uh, cover. And uh, when he's doing this cover of Wild Thing, and that's when you see him and he lets it all out, right? He's playing behind his back. He's playing behind his head. He's playing over his head. He's playing with his teeth. Yeah. He's kind of humping his guitar. He's, and then eventually set the guitar on fire. And there's this absolutely savage performance. And I swear I have a point connected to what you are saying. Doesn't matter. Second, we talk about Hendrix all day if you want to. Yes. <laughs> and never mind that, okay, there's side story to that. There's uh, other groups. I forget which one was supposed to come out after the Hendrix. And refused? Yeah. They were like, we're not going on after there's that. There's no way. There's no way. I mean, you couldn't if Hendrix hadn't done the last song just because the quality of the music was so just from another planet. And what do you do? You do them. There's no way. But after that whole thing where he set the guitar on fire and, and the camera pan on the audience and you see these people with their eyes like, what did I just see? Because, you know, later became a tradition in metal and became, he kind of lost that uh, spontaneity of it all. He became almost a ritual. The, oh, he's going to destroy his guitar and he's going to go crazy. And he's going to... Hendrix was kind of the first to do it there. And... Uh, phenomenal right but my point connected to what you were saying is this is you can tell with the way he was playing guitar that the guitar wasn't a guitar the guitar was his best friend the guitar was an extension of his body clearly Hendrix grew up and by the way he never took lessons and never really learned in a formal way but he grew up with a guitar in his hand strung the wrong way yes and he just went and probably he's going to the bathroom and he's uh, playing his guitar and he's uh, sitting at the table and he's playing his guitar. It's one of the scenes that he had. He was probably really bored. He didn't grow up with much. He was really poor. Somebody gave him a guitar and he was like, I'm going to run with this. Hey, this is kind of fun. I'm going to keep playing with this. That level of, you don't get that when you have 10,000 pleasant distractions that are pleasant, that 
cool for your time and energy. Yeah. You know, that requires a level of dedication that you in some way comes from scarcity, which I'm not advocating scarcity, clearly. I'm not advocating, yeah, boredom is great. No, it sucks. You know, it's fun to be. But there's a fine line between that uh, boredom that sucks and you want to have stimuli around you and not be stuck in an empty room and at the same time be so bombarded with distractions that you don't have uh, you don't have a chance to to explore to figure out to make up stuff with your imagination to figure out stuff on your own to uh, to learn what it is among more limited options that you enjoy I remember we had um, Nick Gregoriades at some point on the podcast and he was saying when he was playing video games and he was every video game was fino- he was so excited and when somebody gave him like some cheat site where he can download every video game there was out there he say after the first two weeks when he was like ecstasy this is phenomenal yeah. he was kind of he started losing its appeal because it was too much and uh, it's like and there's something to that there is a fine line in that regard and it goes back to that good old Taoist theme of balance right too much of a good thing it's no longer a good thing yeah and having all the knowledge of the world at your disposal isn't helping anybody right it's fun to settle a bet yeah so it's tricky it's a tricky game because it's not a clear cut this is good this is bad you know it's not like oh again no nostalgia for the past you know before internet we used to be no before internet people were bored as fuck off of the time and never came up with never became Hendrix never came up with anything fun they were just bored period right they were bored but at least they were fucking uh, yeah but even that that seems to be dropping off as well yeah I saw some it's, uh, my friend Leo Hirai sent me some very interesting documentary on uh, newly developing Japanese attitudes towards sex in that regard with major incel stuff going on. But in any case, beside the point. Oh, that's too bad. The, I didn't mean to go there. No, but <laughs> I mean, some of the thing is just, um, it's tricky, right? Because that's, I think, that's exactly where the nostalgia from the past come from. You know, we see something that's not working ideally now. And then we project onto the past, like, oh, then back then it must have worked great. So nice back then. And then you remember, and yeah, there were some things that were better than now in some ways, because that's how the nostalgia works. It's like it starts from a seed of truth, absolutely, right? But then you start forgetting all the shit. You start blowing up that seed of truth where now it's amazing. It was so great. It was so... And you forget all the stuff that really wasn't. And boom, now you have a perfect mythology regarding the glorious past that never was. It was, portions of it were, I mean, 74 to 92, no war. Can you imagine? That's the longest this country went not being in a war. Vietnam was over, and until the faux Gulf War won. There was nothing? Well, I mean, if you don't count all the CIA sponsor Latin American stuff. I'm talking about stuff. like an actually declared. War, war, right. You know, yeah. drafted, no, that's sort of insanity. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that led to the insanity of the 70s. Yeah. And everybody seemed to have a nice time. Right. Yeah, it's... Oh. And disco music is coming back. I think Kali Minogue, of all people, has a record called Disco coming out. That's the way it goes. And the kids are already copying, and the strings and the horns and all the big stuff is in there, and the funky bass lines. Uh, speaking of which, I ran into this YouTube channel called uh, Twins, The New Trend, and uh, it's a couple of black kids who... Uh, oh, listen to old records. Yes. They're hilarious. And they... It's hilarious to see how open-minded they are. They are listening to every genre known to man. 
and somehow they found something they like and they dig about every genre known to man. You know, they oh, are. My favorite one is a Jolene, the old Dolly Parton song. They get, oh, I didn't get to see like, that oh one. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, but they're like, oh my god! No, my, that's great. My first one was uh, seeing in the air tonight, Phil Collins, where these guys like when uh, when the drums go, they yeah, must have gone crazy. They can't <laughs> keep their shit together because it's like they drop a beat at the end of a song. How the hell is that? Nobody does that. You know, it's like. <laughs> And is but yeah, these guys are sweet. They are always enthusiastic, always positive, never talking shit about the various different kind of music. Always trying to look for it. even stuff that clearly is not what they grow up listening at all. That they explicitly say never heard a song like this ever, and the stuff that fairly mainstream in some way. But it's awesome to see these kids kind of explore and learn all these new things. They're and, fantastic. And yes, I'm glad you to like it. that too. That is a fantastic thing. Yeah. So that one was a sweet channel. I dug that one. But but yeah, I think is uh, and I guess on oh, what you're saying about the um, nostalgia factor. Take the case, for example, of Chris Ryan, uh, um, some of his books, right? Civilized to Death, um, Sex at Dawn, both written phenomenally, by the way. Chris is a really good writer. He's a lot of fun to read. He has great ideas. Yeah. Now, am I 100% sure that his view of hunting and gathering culture 10,000 years ago, 8,000? Am I 100% sure that it's spot on? No, I'm not. No. I find the archaeological evidence very com- contradictory. There's a decent possibility that a lot of what he says is spot on historically. There's also a decent possibility that is uh, maybe partially true, but not quite as uh, quite as idyllic as he as he paints it. You know. But the point is, who cares? Because he's not telling you the first. He's not telling you this is a hundred percent sure the way history was. Second, he's not telling you this is what we need to go back to because. We all understand that there's no going back to that, that that's gone, that that's Air conditioning's uh, not, here to stay. <laughs> that that's <laughs> simply not a reality. So yeah. what he's doing is saying, look, let's say this is real and there are some elements to argue that it is real. Or let's say that it's not exactly real, that there's a base of reality, but then I am expanding on it and over-romanticizing or whatever that may be. Let's say that that's possible. So what? What about the ideas? Like, do these ideas make sense to create a society that today can bring some of these ideas, whether they ever existed or not, bring them into fruition? Because they do seem like pretty damn good ideas. I kind of like that. And I find it, that's a good use of nostalgia. You know, there's a concept. I read it. I mean, everybody around with it, they made pop songs with it, they made movies with that title. The original, I believe, was a writer, but I forget which one, so sorry for the no-credit portion, but this concept of nostalgia for the future, which is, yeah, maybe it wasn't a nostalgia for something that really existed. Maybe it's just that something that you badly wanted because you can almost taste it, what life would be like along certain channels if we went down that path. And so in that sense, nostalgia can take a creative form as not as a, because that's really what the past was like or, but more like, hey, can we create a society that works like this based on these ideas? That's a good use. Unfortunately, most of the time, that's not the way it works. Is, well, no um, one ever wants to try because you'd have to give your billions away if you were going to. Well, and you got to work, you yeah. know, right? Creating something. It's always easier to paint, uh, oh, back then when things were great. No, they weren't. And you are. And also, so what? How does that help us today? 
can you bring back some of that in a way that actually makes sense? Because I think then a lot of the arguments end up about this stuff, about, yes, he was that way. No, he wasn't. Uh, oh, but you're forgetting about this. It's like, how about guys, you all shut the fuck up and we figure out how to take the next step forward and make them as many humans happy as possible. Can we focus on that part maybe, you know? That would be a day. That would be a day. Well, it's funny. A lot of the talk also was like from the 60s into the 70s, there was so much the focus on newness. Everything was new, yeah. new, new, new. And that sort of raced that sort of stacking of style shifting along with technology going insane. Yeah. You know, you have microchips the same time acid arrived. Isn't that uh-huh. interesting? So with all that sort of blossoming, once you got deeper into the mid-80s, people were kind of tired of change. So maybe yeah. this yeah, even because the future kind of petered out and that's when that backward look began of a more rustic time where a person took care of themselves and was the perfect moment for these conservatives to be like oh yeah all these programs where we're paying people money what is this you take care of yourself back in the olden times and they made that look good right and that that's what led us to where we are now even the dogs are pissed off about it I did find a notion of things that did shift over time that you could clearly tell the difference between the aughts and the now. Mm-hmm. Everybody's covered in tattoos. Yeah. Yeah, that's a... Uh, but I, in fact, I mean, if you look at the kind of change on so many levels in the last 40 years, is a fuck lot. There's a ton of change, you know. At the same time, as you say, in some areas, since not so much. Probably because there's so much change in everything else. I mean, it's the classic thing. It's like... Anytime there's major change, yeah. people react in one of two ways. There are the people who love it and they want to run with it as and much as possible. The shunners, no. And there's the, we need to go back to the old days because all this change is, is making life unrecognizable. It's making life difficult for them to, it's not how they grew up. It's not, there's no relationship with the world they knew as kids. And they find it scary. And, you know, because change is never all in a good direction, sometimes they do seeing stuff that's troubling them and is making them go pull the brakes quick. Now, there's something to be said for pull the brakes quick because there are things that we're doing that are clearly flirting with danger. You know, all the stuff with artificial intelligence, all that. There's a lot of stuff where change is like... genetics in crazy ways. Yes. So you can see how pull the brakes is not just... uh, I'm not saying it like, oh, those guys are all stupid. They shouldn't embrace the ride. I get it. I absolutely get it. I'm scared of seedless watermelons. That seems like a bad mistake. Right. And then one day, there were no seeds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what in the world... But, it, you know, now that I think about it more, that kid that was going to do his, you know, Andy Warhol pop art back in the mm-hmm. 70s, he's probably coding now. Sure. Sure. Or, you know, look at video games. Yep. I I just can't. Sometimes you fall into one and they're fantastic. To make it the core of your life, I think, is a bit of a problem. Yeah, of course. But, you know, a couple of hours a day, anything is not going to kill you. Sure. And the amount of work and artistry that goes into that is clearly something that's phenomenal. Is not in fashion now, that yeah. didn't go to the movies, that has been concentrated in different ways. So, same way as the movies now are kind oh, of crappy, the quality has gone down, whereas TV has gone dramatically up. Well, and the the big problem with movies is um, all of it's so fake now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all CGI. Jaws is great because the shark didn't work. Right. But now you can make a shark look so real, and and then it just becomes like, well, clearly this is all bullshit. I hate movies where 
clearly there's no way. Unsurvivable. Right. When there's 10,000 orcs oh, yeah, coming yeah, in yeah, on yeah, three yeah. guys, give me a fucking break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets too far sometimes. Mm-hmm. And once you get, you can't, you know, it's a delicate balance. Once it is. Once you get out of the, the suspension of disbelief. Yes, yes. Once you shake that, the yeah, rest of that James that Bond movie is going to be down. long and the popcorn's already gone and you're going to be ready to go. So I take it that Chinese movie where people are flying around uh, while they are fighting or, you know, because they use a lot of wires but, and stuff. But it's no, like, like the old school ones, like, yeah. like, even like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, yeah. those were fantastic. That's, oh, you like it? Oh, because that's a pretty yeah, serious suspension of like disbelief kind 10, of thing. There's 10,000 Nazis right. coming in on these three guys in a foxhole and somehow right. they're going to wake like, No, you yeah, fuckers yeah. would be dead and there's no... Come on. Let's at least make it look. There's just so much. Same unbelievable. Yeah, right. Where it's just yeah. no way these overwhelming odds you could defeat it. I don't know why that bothers me, but damn it. You know, that uh, boats what you're saying about the myth of the past, what you're saying about this stuff, kind of brings me to a theme that I've been. Well, I mean, of course, it's a theme I think about all the time because that's kind of how I make a living in a lot of ways. And it's related to the power of storytelling because. Everything is about telling great stories. And if it sounds like too much of an overblown statement, how is that? Think about the stuff that you wouldn't even think as important or that you wouldn't think it's creative or storytelling-wise. Whether you're talking politics, really it's about selling a story to your audience. And whether that's any relationship with reality or not, that's completely secondary. As long as you can sell them a believable story or one that maybe is not believable to everybody else, but one that your electorate is going to buy, there's real power in that. You can spin anything with a good story. Similarly, think about something like um, uh, the advertising industry, right? If, uh, you know, they tell you stories to sell you a product. If products could just sell themselves, then they wouldn't spend gazillions on advertising. And so how do they do it? Because they associate certain products with ideas, values, stories that you cherish. Um, On a bigger scale, think about stories like nationalism and patriotism, Mm -hmm. right? It's very hard sell to convince people from different social classes, different interests, different political persuasions, different sensitivities, that they are all part of one big happy family, despite the fact that, you know, real families, real communities are face-to-face. Nations are not, you know, a nation is not a family. There's just no... And yet, if you can make up the story well enough about, you know, our, our nation family kind of ideal, you can... You can push people in any direction you want, as long as you're waving the flag in that direction. Because that flag is, there's a story behind that particular flag. Again, the story may have no relationship with reality, but if you sold the myth well, if you sold the archetype well, people develop an emotional attachment. Why? Because those colors are cool? No, because there's a story behind it. And that's what you do. You know, it's very hard to convince people who have nothing to gain from fighting wars to benefit specific political interests to go leave the better pieces of themselves on a battlefield unless you tell them a good story. And then suddenly people are, they, people live and die in the name of stories, you know. And then the North Koreans bombed San right. Francisco and Los Angeles. 
in a terrible, evil strike. Yeah, you're going there too often for my taste. I'm beginning to get worried now. If you say it one more time, fly, it's gonna... I saw a missile fly out. This was 15 years ago. Right. And they said, oh, that was flight 4720 from Honolulu flying into LAX. It was not. Either it was a U.S. sub that something went terribly wrong and something shot off, or more likely, it was a Chinese sub that said, this one went west. Yeah. Just so you know. Just so you know, right? I don't know. That freaks me out. The way I see it is a good story can make any boring reality more exciting. You know, like, I think stories to me make uh, food taste better. I remember, like, when I was a kid and, you know, like, often kids, they want to play, they don't want to eat and stuff. If they told me a story about the food, if they were like, oh, this is not just a steak, this was hunted by the Lakota chasing bison on the plains <laughs> on that day when they fought with the crows. And now I'm like, bring me the steak. Oh my God, this tastes amazing. This is phenomenal. I still remember my dad. There were these like little kids books. And I remember seeing like this cave woman was cooking some something on a fire. A brontosaurus leg. Who knows what the <laughs> hell. And then, so my dad as a joke would be like, every time he would make me something like chicken, he would be like, oh, this is not just chicken. This is the chicken cooked by the cave woman onto the fire. And even when I knew where, you know, it's bullshit, it's we are played, it still made it better. You know what I mean? It still made it more interesting. Like, I like to think where food comes from, the journey that it is made to get to my table. And somehow when I take a bite, it starts taking better. Um, sex. You know, it's like if you think about the pure mechanics of sex, it's like, okay, sure, there are good feelings and stuff. But like what what's going on in your head, the fantasy of it all, the imagination attached to sex, makes sex a hundred times better than purely the physical mechanics of it all. That's why like if people are, if it's like rush, just going, get your thing, get out, it's like, there's a place for that. Okay, that's fine. doesn't feel bad. But when you take your time, when you let your mind go with it, when you... St oh, everything gets a hundred times more intense, right? And so to me, it's funny because every single thing we do, it's about stories make it better. Yeah, because re realistically, every every external stimuli that is out there is filtered through our mind, and yep. our mind then tells us a story about what it is that's what is they are seeing, what is they are touching, what is they are, and and that process is one where if you tap into consciously, if you figure out a way to tell yourself better story, that's a way that can uh, change your mood a lot depending on that. That's where visualization or some kind of meditation along those lines come in where you can really change your perception of reality a little bit, where you can... So I find it fascinating. I find... And by, you know, not all in a good way, because as we said, there's... Uh, the Nazis were masters at telling stories. They created a great mythology for their people, convincing people who clearly were not Nazis and had nothing to gain by becoming Nazis that that was the way to go because they create powerful archetypes. So it's, uh, again, it's not a all great, wonderful thing. It's a, it's a neutral. It's like the force, right? There's the good side and the dark side. There's You can use it for fantastic purposes. You can use it for terrible purposes. But that concept that storytelling is at the roots of all our lives, I find it extremely applicable. 
Well, what could go back any further? I mean, as soon as language arrived, right? Somebody was carving some bullshit out, yep. and making it a little better, right? Nothing wrong with sprinkling some extra, maybe not completely factual, yeah, awesomeness to a story. And I, I mean, if I think about what I do for a living, it's all stories. You know, when I'm in cl the classroom, I'm telling histories based on real facts, but I'm still, the way I'm telling you make all the difference between a boring ass uh, history class and something that you want to hear. It's the storytelling component. History on fire, of course. Uh, the When I write, when I, it's all about storytelling. So I, for me, I'm extra sensitive to it because I probably do it more than the average person, but I still think that it applies to everybody. With that in mind, I'm reading articles in the past few days that they have proof of prehistoric female warriors and definitely hunters. Yeah. I mean, there's really... Which just uh, makes sense, right? I read the same thing, actually. If you're um, a good hunter, they're not going to care if you're male or female. Or they, you don't think they were that... They want to eat. Yeah, and the thing is... So, okay, what's the traditional story? The traditional story is this. is Among hunters and gatherer cultures that tend to be the more egalitarian there are, where gender roles are, you know, men and women both have access to... There is no... It's not a male-dominated society. Typically, there are exceptions, but typically that they are not. However, there's a difference in gender activities. And the traditional story is that men hunted and women gathered. And one of the reasons being is that women breastfeed, men don't. If a man is gone on a long hunting expedition, no big deal. The kids survive. If a woman is going on a long hunting expedition, you got a problem because that means you need to take well, a breastfeeding woman, which in hunting and gathering society would last a long time, and if you have more than one kid, that's a lot of years of your lives, then you can't, because not because the woman can't hunt, but because you can't really take an infant on an expedition. You're like, okay, everybody quiet. When the, wah, wah. It's like, oh, Jesus. But so Sarah with the short hair, she wasn't going to get pregnant. Th there's that. <laughs> but also the thing is, yes, that's a general rule, and it's applicable. For sure. There is an element of that that probably the majority of people, never mind the fact that a lot of hunting was very close contact with big scary animals where more muscle mass helps. The fact of the matter is the average man has more muscle mass than the average woman. That helps too. But again, that's a general rule. Then there are the 10,000 exceptions to that general rule, which is where real life takes place. Because the reality is that it's not that uh, men can't gather or women can't hunt. You know, the idea, oh, women gather because they can do it a little safer and they can do it close to the main village. They don't have to go on these long expeditions so they can carry a baby with them because the plant is not going to get spooked if the baby starts crying. Sure, true, but again, it's not like a man is going to walk by and see something yummy or see something useful and they're not going to gather it. So of and course, Dainty Og could smell that shit from a mile away. So, so he was very useful. Right? <laughs> so there's that. And similarly... Much like men could gather, it's not that there's something genetically that prevents women from being able to hunt, right? Of course women could hunt. Of course women did hunt. Uh, the percentage may have been less. But again, if you are not breastfeeding with a kid, why not? Then you could. And so, of course, that happened. Uh, I think, again, people like sometimes overly simple stories 
So man the hunter, woman the gatherer kind of thing. It's one of those where obviously there were a million exceptions. You know, if uh, if the next tribes come over the hill and try to bash your head with their clubs, it's not like all the women said, oh, I'm sorry, guys, this is your job to fight in a war. Please go on to the battlefield and do it. No, it's right there in your village. They are coming in. You need to know how to defend yourself. You need to know something. So, of course, in, there is no military in a society like that. Is Everybody needs to know how to do a lot. And um, But, yeah, I think it's interesting to see it popping up in the archaeological record. And it's interesting seeing people who have very strict ideas about gender roles being like, no, that couldn't be. Because uh, he's like, come on, man. He's like, of course it could be. Of course it should have been. It just makes sense. That's hilarious. Yeah, we get so locked into our... This is the way it was. Yeah. That even the most simple, obvious, well, of course, if she was good with the spear, mm-hmm. she was going to come with us. Yep. And I think that's the thing. People tend to... That's why dogmas are popular, right? Because they are simple. The reality of life is that it's made sometime, as much as rules are useful to orient our lives, there are always more exceptions than there are rules. Yeah, for sure. So... Anything you say comes with 5,200 caveats where you go through, but let's also remember this, 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 and this, and this, and this. The problem is that makes communication really difficult where everything you say, you have to go, yes, that is true, but But, also let's remember. So people start cutting all the stuff that comes after the but part, and it just, before you know it, you end up with like a very simple, clear slogan, a stereotype that makes for simplicity, but also makes for missing the point altogether about what reality is. And sometimes the stuff after the butt part's the best part. <laughs> uh, how many T's are in that butt? Just checking. Oh, yeah. I'll have to look. Yeah. I'll check the internet. No, but you're right. I mean, <laughs> that's what, and that's what Taoism is to me. Is like a lot of it is there's this, but there's also this. Yeah. And and in some ways, not even but is and there's also this. But because conventional wisdom makes it, oh, there's this, and they cannot think that there's its opposite is also true, then you have to mention it as a, oh, but it's also this, rather than and it's also this. Whittling instead of inclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it forces you to think too much. You know, it's... Uh, and God some, forbid. Yeah, and, and sometimes you want simple guidelines. You don't want a whole long, complicated thing. And so that's how it works. That's the gig. It was a post on Facebook by somebody who went viral. Why do people keep supporting Trump, no matter what he does, and say, you all don't get it. I live in Trump country. Um, They don't give a shit what he does. He's just something to rally around and hate liberals. That's it, period. He always realizes that and plays it up. So they think just to piss off libtards? Yeah, and the the thing is, yes, and I think... Like their whole issue with masks is they are playing chicken with nature and whoever flinches just move down their internal pack in order one step closer to being a liberal. You've got to understand the one core value that they hold above all others is hatred for what they consider weakness because that's what they believe strength is, hatred of weakness. And I mean passionate, sadistic hatred. Um, 
that's what proves that they are strong. Their passion and hatred for weakness. Sometimes they will lamp vulnerability in with weakness. They do that because people tend to start humbling themselves when they come in some compromising or overwhelming circumstances. And to them, that's obviously a sign of weakness. Kindness is weakness. Honesty is weakness. Compromise is weakness. They consider their very existence to be superior in every way to anyone who doesn't hate weakness as much as they do. They consider liberals to be weak people that are inferior, almost a different species. And the fact that liberals are so weak is why they have to unite in large numbers, which they find disgusting. But it's that disgust that is a true expression of their natural superiority. Uh, go ahead and try to have a logical, rational conversation with them. Just keep in mind what I said here and be forewarned. So let's run with this weakness thing. Yeah. Um, so to jump on another team related to something we have been touching on regarding sort of the politics of outrage of why are so many people so angry all the time when it comes to politics, but not only politics are an excuse in a way. It's uh, if it's not about a political thing, it's about those people who mm, color their hair pink or whatever the hell it is. Right. Anything is a good excuse for it. There's a tendency for for some people to have this sense that anything other than an ultra-individualistic, I pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm my own man, I don't need anybody, I'm strong, I'm tough, I'm macho man, anything short of that means you're weak. Which means that if you... If you emphasize the need for cooperation among people, if you emphasize the need that sometimes people need one another, well, that's a weakness because that means you're not self-sufficient hero just like me. Or if, uh, you know, if you acknowledge that sometimes shit hurts and you don't have the answers and you don't know what to do, that's a weakness. That's the sense that anything that puts you in a vulnerable position I mean, in some sense, you can see it, right? Because vulnerability clearly, in some way, objectively, is a form of weakness, right? If we were invulnerable, strong, nothing can touch us, we are able to handle everything with... Great, who doesn't want that? But the problem is that's not the way life works. You know, we are all vulnerable. I mean, we are a fucking dot in space, you know, like a volcano can explode in three seconds and we're all dead and anything so much of our life is unstable and we have no control over the vulnerability is the name of the game never mind that even if everything works according to your plan and you sit on 10,000 guns that you keep everyone else away from your food stocks or whatever that is ultimately you get old you get sick you die so everybody's vulnerable that's human life to be vulnerable isn't it strange that this gang tends to be more of a christian ilk where it shouldn't be a problem because things in the future are taken care of so what are you so worried about being vulnerable and mm. so what are you so worried about your time's coming but yeah that's supposed to be the best part yeah clearly people don't believe it very much and there's also a contradiction between and in fact it's funny to see it in christianity because the idea of uh people worshiping this half-naked sweaty guy on a cross it's already carries you know this idea of i'm i'm gonna drop on my knees and pray to this guy that <laughs> some of these folks find it emasculating and so they freak out because they have to then overdo their manliness by the fact that their religion clearly is not built along those lines a lot of early christianity a lot of jesus words are so much more mellow so much more delicate so much more 
you know, they are Christian because they grew up with it, because it's part of their tradition, but there is something in there that rubs them the wrong way. They're missing the whole gist of the thing. And that's why they like the more bloodthirsty Old Testament passages kind of stuff. The so fighting done. Because that makes them feel manly, you know, because the Jesus figure, you know, it doesn't, the Romans arrive to capture him. He doesn't kill them all with awesome Kung Fu moves. And, you know, they grab him, they beat the hell out of him, and then they crucify him. That's some serious vulnerability there, right? In terms of actual, the basic of the story. So you have to spin it in another way because it doesn't feel good otherwise. It feels like you lost. It feels like you got your ass kicked. It feels like you couldn't take care of yourself in a way. So it needs to be spun another way. And that's what I think a lot of people do is they hate to be reminded of their own vulnerability, of the fact that no matter what, match awards they shout out at the top of their lungs the reality is that they are vulnerable like anyone else maybe okay you work like a dog now you're one inch less vulnerable than everyone else good job doesn't really change the fact that your existential conditions you know isn't a lot of it too that they're pretty convinced that it's only a few minutes from now that i'll be the next billionaire as well so sure and there is this idea of like and the chance of that is exactly zero pretty much so it's an interesting mental process going on there because he's obviously disregarding the fact that I'm sorry to tell you, man, but you are as vulnerable as any other human, maybe just as smidge less, but in the great scheme of things, it doesn't make much difference. But there are folks who clearly are uncomfortable with that feeling, and I understand why. It sucks to be vulnerable. It sucks to feel that you can be squished any moment. It sucks to feel that everything you care about can be taken away from you at any moment. Yeah, but once you get used to it, it's not so bad. And yet, I got news for you. That's the way life works, Yeah, right? it's common. But I think there is this sense that anything that remotely reminds them of that enrages them. And rage is actually a great cover for we for what they perceive as weakness, which is vulnerability, right? So that if I can get enraged and angry and hateful and just yar, you know, that kind of vibe, that protects me from realizing how damn vulnerable you are. And in their mind, again, vulnerable, which is what we all are, is weakness. And the things that we would argue like things like taking care of one another. That's weakness, because a real man doesn't need anybody else's help. Um, You're going to be 70 one day, my friend. You're going to change your mind. Right? (laughs) (laughs) That's why there are a lot of people who don't age very gracefully. Um, um, Kindness is weakness, because it's like this... You know, it's like you can be polite, fine, we'll deal with that. But to actually have empathy and feel somebody else's pain and be in that place, that means you're weak. You know, there's. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, it is terrible. And yet, I think when you look at the not just political, cultural landscape, but also political, I think that plays a huge role in some people's identities and why some people gravitate to certain ideas versus others. I think a lot of it. I don't want to make it deterministic and say all of it. it it's not all of it. There are 10,000 other exceptions, as we we're saying. But I think a lot of it has to do with people's unease with their own sense of being afraid to find out that maybe they are 
a little more weak than they would like to admit to themselves. Maybe they have more vulnerabilities that they would like to admit to themselves. Or as the Rogan thing regarding uh, ultra-homophobes, why are they so angry against gay people? It's like, somebody's gay, what does that... Is the famous Rogan line, what was it? They are afraid to find out that dicks are delicious. (laughs) Yeah. Is that... How often does that happen? You know, that there's the super hardcore homophobe. Every time. Uh, Usually in an airport bathroom some somewhere. There that yeah. would be healthier if acknowledged and expressed. Which is probably shame that was loaded up on them when they were six. And of course. The, the only thing to do is just hate. Isn't that yeah. crazy? Yeah. But I can see that. Because hate can cover a lot. Cover a whole lot. Absolutely. And um, I'll prove to the rest of the football team I'm not gay because we'll go kick this gay kid's ass. Absolutely. Look at that. That's exactly what we're describing, right? That describes the United States. Yeah, that's... uh, I mean, internationally, selfish, self-absorbed, and give a shit not one about anything else. Isn't that sort of how... You know, I wish he was just U.S. Uh, Unfortunately, I think he described a huge chunk of humanity. Yeah, I, I suppose you could put that on China just as much as you could the U.S. You can do it in a bunch. Unfortunately, so humans it's, it's across humanity. the board deal with the fact that nobody likes to be vulnerable, and yet existence reminds them every day that they are vulnerable. And so some people respond to it with saying, okay, these are the rules of the game. I get it. Let me try to figure out how to flow along with it. And some people respond with absolute denial. No, there's no such thing. I'm not that I'm, and then you have to swim up river and just fight it every day of your life because of course that's not reality and so you have to be ultra hardcore to squash that voice and the bitterness only builds upon itself of course because you are trying to deny reality and anything that tries to deny reality takes a lot of energy right it's one of those I mean even you know we said it to homosexuality if you apply to there's a ton of hatred in certain religions that are very strict about sex toward sexuality. Yeah. And when these people are like condemning that evil whore, that evil this, they are really, what they are doing is really they are yelling at their own instincts, at the little voice inside who said, you know what, getting laid is exactly what I would want right now. Yeah, that looks kind of fun. And so you are in this internal warfare all the time. You are trying to squash what you perceive as the sinful part of yourself. You are trying to squash this part of you that you are not comfortable with. But that doesn't feel so good. So the way you do it is you take it out on somebody else who represents everything that you hate about yourself. You know, And so it's exactly, you know, we said it about homosexuality, but it applies to sexuality in general. It applies to 10,000 other things. You know, it applies to... It can be exactly the football player who really has a sensitive artistic band and so need to go kick some nerds ass because that's really, hey, poetry actually looks kind of fun. But hey, that would make me weak and stupid. I can't do that. So (sighs) Now I feel there is no hope. Well, no, but I think in that sense, there is the game of some of the strongest human beings I can think of are people who look at the existential conditions of life in the eyes, acknowledge them, realize that that's the way it is and there's nothing they can do to change it. And if anything, what I would look at as real strength 
is exactly the kind of strength that embraces vulnerability, embraces empathy, embraces and turns it into, because to me, being able to be kind when you when life is kicking you in the balls on a daily basis that takes more strength than any bullshit macho posturing may suggest that to me is real strength you know the other stuff is is a parody of strength it's like it's it's a bad imitation of what strength looks like by having watched too many steven seagal movie you know <laughs> it's like yeah that's not the way it works <laughs> that's not life at all and and i think it's important to remember i think it's an important theme to deal with because uh, because it's a universal one it's one we all deal with you know So they uh they did overlay maps of Nevada and Arizona. Uh-huh. And it just so happens that the reservations are as blue as blue can be. South Dakota too. I was looking at the map of South Dakota and it was uh, red, 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 red. Oh, there's a really big blue spot here, here and there. Oh, they're all reservations. Yeah, of course. So it seems the folks that are the most downtrodden, black women, Native Americans, are the ones that are leading the way for a country that's accepting of everyone and willing to be empathetic and care about each other. And there's something to be said there. The ones that have been treated the worst. Well, that is interesting because it opens a whole big can of worms because then there's the other factor that's interesting of seeing, whereas traditionally all kind of ethnic minorities have been in the last, few decades ever since the party switch in the 1920s and so have been uh, definitely not on the republican side it's changing a little bit like for example the latino vote changed dramatically in this last election and i think the reality is that of course there are people from all over the world who have uh, strong conservative tendencies but clearly when strong conservative people are are yelling at you that, you know, if, if they don't admit you to the club because of the color of your skin, of course you had no option. So right. you're like, okay, That's these true. guys are dicks, I'm gonna go against them. But the moment the club rules relax just a tiny bit, where they don't tell you explicitly, we hate you, you suck, where it's a little more on the down low. And maybe there are even some club members who don't even feel that way about you and they are okay with it. And the ones who do not feel that way about you, they keep it a little more to themselves or they couch it in a different language. Then suddenly it's like, oh, dear mom, I can come back to you. I've always wanted to be one of you guys because that's how my mindset works. Yeah. But now finally that you don't kick me in the face because of the color of my skin explicitly, then yay, I can join you. And I think that's a factor that we're going to see more and more as racism tend to be, explicit racism tend to be frowned upon. Those dynamics may change over time. But if that, ch- if that happens, so many other things will shift that we won't be able to keep track. If, sure. if explicit racism actually disappeared, right. we'll never see that. Of course, of course. I'd like to say we would. Yeah. But it's interesting because it, today, uh, even racists have to be ashamed of being racist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even racists oh, yeah. don't admit they are racist. It, that, that's a success in itself. It's For like, sure. they are. They are a bit out of the closet right now. Though. Right. Yeah, more than, yeah, sure. But yeah, no, they don't, they don't go marching around with their racist sleeves. 
unfurled. Some of the most racist people I know are absolutely convinced that they are not racist at all. Isn't that hilarious? And I'm just like, okay, man. You know, some of my best friends. I hate to... Yeah. Are, are Puerto Rican. Of course, of course. It's that kind of thing, right? Or I, I did find it interesting, the Miami situation. Are they still pissed off about Kennedy yeah. and Castro? Well, primarily with communism, Cuba, and so on. So, yes, there's the, the Cubans are... Hun- That's 60 years ago. Yeah, but, you know, and I... But here is the funny thing. It's like, I understand Castro's communism, yeah, was terrible. Were, yes. Yeah, no. there's. I can see all not the quite Pol Pot, but not a big party. Yeah, absolutely. But to somehow go from Castro's communism to look at the current political landscape and identify anybody as having anything to do with that, I mean, I don't even know what this. It's like <laughs> when you see all the things about uh, Biden is a communist. It's like anywhere in the world other than in U.S. Biden is a center-right politician. Big time. He's more conservative than not. Center, if you really want to be generous, that's about it. There's a lot of concern about that. If you think that guy is like an extreme left communism thing, what's that line from The Princess Bride? You know, you keep using that word. Inconceivable. Well, that there's that, but the other oh. one, right? You keep using the word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Yeah. You know, there's that. People throw these words like, with no relation with reality whatsoever. It's like, no, dude, it's like Denmark is not Cuba in the 1960s. It's a little bit of a different thing. And it's yep. some center-right dude like Biden. He's not exactly a communist. Is uh, So and, it's pretty funny. And at least you can get decent health care in Cuba. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the price to pay is a little heavy for that in terms of uh, the communist regime. But yes, that's a... Uh, I thought that door had been closed. That's a, But yeah, it's funny. It's like, yeah, the rebuilding of the communist boogeyman when communism has been dead now forever. And I, I think there are about three people in the world who want to bring it back. It's like it's a non-existent thing, but... I don't know. But, you know, the Jordan Peterson, the postmodern Marxists are out to get us. It's like, oh, gee, good goodness. God. I don't think that's what they had in mind. Yeah. It's, uh, I think I think the pharmaceutical industry and benzos are more about to get you than the post-Marxist in Jordan Peterson case. And that, that big pharmaceutical, the, the people making the oxys, the company paid a multi-billion dollar fine. Yeah, yeah. But, but the owners, they get a $250 million fine. Of course. And they get to go on their merry way. Of course. Yeah. Nice. Situation normal. Yeah. Wild. That's it. Okay. Unless My you got something awesome. Um, nothing, man. We just want to wish you a super good day. Don't be a dick. Vulnerabilities don't make you less of a person. Acknowledging them is not a bad thing. And uh, and again, the biggest strength out there is finding a way to be nice to anyone you run into. Amen. Well, the funky music means one thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dabdowers podcast. 191 of them at this point, plus a few bonuses along the way. You know, there's a, a nasty rumor that we may be invited to do show 200 live on a cer- certain social distancing network. Just, that would be fun. Just for fun. That would be fun. 
We'll have to put the swearometer on to be sure to keep it uh, keep it clean. I don't know what we'll do when my brain locks up. Yeah. Then we'll have something pre-recorded. Now a commercial. Yeah, well, uh, we'll think it through. <laughs> no, I mean, most of the time we don't do too much editing. It's pretty much it flows right. Today we are this particular episode. We'll have a few edits because we are recording a little earlier in the morning than we are used to. So our brains are a little. A little foggier than they should have been. I think we made it through quite nicely. Yes. Cool, man. So, everybody, hope you have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time. Adios. Look at that blue jay. Switch. D B O L E L L I. R I C H I M O N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at D-Bolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! No, you don't. In questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, yeah? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. Completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're outro. Oh, we're outro. Okay, sorry. So that's so. Let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me. Can you about, translate for me, please? I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> now, most everybody thought. <coughs> sorry. Well. <coughs> We'll do a cut on there. Or not. That was something else. <laughs> no, that's maybe too powerful. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss. I'm 50 now. Can you fucking believe that? <laughs> I was melancholy about it for like a good month. Like, uh. But I think I was more worried about dying at 49. <laughs> <laughs> so making it to 50. Making it to 50 is like, fuck it. I think Louis C.K. may be a monster, but he had a great line. No one, there's no candlelight vigils for somebody over 50. <laughs> he had his chance.